You're about to learn how private equity is changing the auto industry. This is AutoLine. We've got a great lineup of guests on today's show. First up is Tim Luliet, who's now the CEO of Dura Automotive, a supplier company that just came out of bankruptcy two months ago. Tim has held a variety of jobs in this industry, including stints at Metaldyne, Detroit Diesel, ITT Automotive. In fact, when I first met him several years ago, he was in product planning at American Motors. But today, Tim will be talking about the impact private equity has had on the auto industry. After that, I'll be talking with Phil Martins, the CEO of a brand new company called Arvin Innovation, which was carved out of Arvin Meritor. Essentially, Phil is taking over the car and light truck operations of Arvin Meritor that are being spun off into a brand new company. But even though it's a startup, it's starting up with nearly $2.5 billion in annual sales and with 9,000 employees in 16 countries. Phil Martins will provide us with an interesting look at how this industry is evolving. And then I'll be talking with Frank Dunn, a senior counsel at the giant law firm of Dykema Gossett. Frank spent most of his career with General Motors, so he's got a great background in the industry. But at Dykema, he's been able to get a great view of how private equity is dealing with all aspects of the auto industry. So stay right where you are. We've got a great series of interviews coming right up, right after this. This is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. I'm joined now with Tim Luliet, the president and CEO of Dura Automotive. Tim, great to have you here. It's good to be here, John. Uh, we'll get to Dura in a minute because I got to hear that whole story of how it's come about. But you're a guy who's been in all different parts of the auto industry right now, with car companies, with suppliers especially, running everything. Have you ever seen business as bad as it is in the North American market right now? You know, every time we're in a recession, we always say, boy, it's the worst we've ever seen. But I think this time that that is really true. Um, you know, we have a, a combination of events. I mean, fuel prices, the overall economy, and basically changes in consumer taste. So it is a different type of challenge than we've ever faced before. As you step back and look at three of your biggest customers, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, some people are wondering in this town, are these guys even going to make it? What are your thoughts? First of all, we all have to pray that they do make it. I mean, the, the implication of anything, of any one of those three failings is, is a pretty bad thing. And I don't think they have to fail. I think, uh, as I said yesterday, you know, all of us are now going to be paid, or uh, we're going to see what we're paid for to do, and that's to run these companies. It's going to be a challenge uh, because these are difficult times. And I think we've got a core group of management. We've got a core group of understanding in this business that it has changed forever. We've got to do things differently. I think the Chevy Volt is a perfect case in point where they're doing things different there and Ford bringing vehicles from Europe we've talked about that for 20 years they're doing that now finally doing it right what do you think though of those who say well you know hey tough you know uh, we bailed Chrysler out here they're in trouble again why should we go help Detroit it just seems to get into a, a ditch at some point in the future again well you know there is accountability yes we've got to fix the problems for real but even from a national defense perspective, from an overall economy perspective, Detroit is critical. It may not be what it was in the 1950s, but it's still critical to this economy. And I think people get a little too cavalier with saying, well, who cares? Let's let it, let's let it hit the rocks. 
We can't. We cannot do that. Because if, uh, if a GM were to go down, it's going to pull a bunch of other supplier companies, maybe like your own, down with it. GM, uh, if GM were to go bankrupt, and I, you know, we don't want to even talk about those things, but if that was to occur, there's probably hundreds of suppliers. Because remember, what bankruptcy means, they don't pay their bills. And as, as that process ripples through, it has catastrophic events. Once suppliers start going out of business and not making parts, it just starts to ripple through. So I think, I think everyone's aware of that. No one wants to even go near that. And I think you know, everyone's striving to, 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 to remake this economy and remake this auto industry. It takes some time, but I think everyone's uh, got the message. Tim, one of the biggest changes I've seen in this industry over the last few years is private equity coming right. in. Uh, what's your take on that? Has it been good for the industry, bad for the industry? And I've got to imagine some of the private equity companies are just scratching their head wondering why the heck they ever came into the automotive industry. Private equity likes risk and they like reward. Uh, you got to pick the bottom at the right time. You got to pick that investment at the right time. I think those that came in a couple of years ago probably regret their timing. But on the other side, private equity will be the catalyst of change. It always is in every industry. It's been catalyst for change in the refining industry. It's been in the semiconductor industry. It's been in the, uh, in the, cons in the why? telecoms. Why, why is it such a, a catalyst for change? It accepts risk because it demands a higher return. It has a, a focus from the standpoint of the owners. When you have a board and all your ownership is represented by five people, you know what your owners expect. There is an intimacy of understanding of targets and objectives and goals, and they have little patience. And I think that's very good for an industry in transition. Now, Cerberus got into Chrysler at the same time they got into home mortgages, and, and, and they've been a little distracted. But the bottom line is, let's, just, let's give it some time. And I think, first of all, private equity is not done in this space, uh, and they will help transform it. You see a lot of upside for this business once it gets through this, this terrible period it's going through right now? You know, I do. I mean, first of all, we look at it through Detroit eyes. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at it through the global eyes. It's a growth business. Some of the OEMs are doing very well and suppliers are doing very well. I mean, from Dura's perspective, we're mostly non-U.S. now. So, you know, we've got, we've got a better footprint. But I think every time you don't see a car sold today, you have to remember we've seen this in the past, it will be sold in the future. And so I, in, the, in the 72, 73 period, we thought the world was pretty tough. Boy, by 75, 76, life was good again. This happens. We've got to make sure that the, the, the changes we've put in place are structural and forever, and we don't get back to our old ways. You're now at Dura. You've been to so many companies in your career. And, yeah. you know, we all joke, geez, Tim can't hold a job. But really, you've got a breadth of experience that few other executives have got. Why'd you go to Dura? What was the allure of doing yet another company, as it were? Well, you know, after uh, I, I stepped down from Metaldine after spending a year in Japan, um, I went sailing for six weeks. And that was long enough. <laughs> and, and, and we as, uh, said, look, I'm, I, I will get back in the business if I can find something that, that has a, a good balance sheet, has a, technolo a technological story to tell, and is something that, that I can have fun in. And I think the Dura situation is a case in point. One of the least levered companies now in the industry, a global footprint, some great technology, and a team there that I think we can go do some great things together. So I'm too young to retire, and, uh, and this, is a, this, is a, this is a good opportunity. Well, that's great. Tim, thanks so much for coming in, giving us a little bit of your view of what's going on in the industry, especially private equity, which you've worked with so much, and, and showing us a little bit of what Dura can do, too. Thank you, John.
Joining me right now is Phil Martins, the CEO of Arvin Innovation. Great to have you here, Phil. John, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, for those who don't know, what is Arvin Innovation? Some might know the name Arvin Meritor, but you're not quite part of that now. No, we announced in May that Arvin Meritor, we're actually going to split the company in two. Uh, and take the light vehicle systems business and create a separate publicly held company called Arvin Innovation. We'll complete that within really about the next nine or so months, but it's a real opportunity for us. We'll be headquartered in Detroit, and we think the automotive space has a lot to offer, not only in the United States, but it's clearly a growth business outside right now. So Arvin Meritor is going to be in big trucks, and Arvin Innovation is light vehicles, cars and light trucks? That's correct. You know, Arvin Meritor had two strong business units. One was our commercial vehicle systems group, which really focused on the class eight, class seven, six type trucks. And then we had the light vehicle systems business. And we've worked collectively over the past year to prepare the company uh, so that we could be two standalone businesses. And we think it's a great decision for the shareholders and we're very pleased with it. Now I remember when Arvin and Meritor were put together and yeah. it was, hey, th wouldn't this be great to put the trucks with the light vehicles right. and that'll make a, a great sort of contra-cyclical contra business. What went wrong there? You know, I think at the time, and I've read the strategies behind that, and I do remember from my other posts in the industry that that went on, I think at the time it was a good strategy. But when we stepped back and started to look at the businesses and look at the direction we're going, we found that the light vehicle systems can move rapidly into emerging markets. And we also found that the product overlap between the two was much less than what we... So no real synergy there to share. There's very little overlap, very little synergy there. And on the commercial vehicle side, it's, it's you know, a global business with most of the operations in the U.S. and Europe. And we really looked at it strategically saying, look, these could be two great independent businesses and probably do better for our shareholders apart. And after a period of study, we said, yeah, let's do that. That's the right decision. The heavy truck market, not in the United States, yeah. but in the rest of the world is booming right now, as you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm almost looking back and saying, hey, wait, the Arvin Meritor guy's got all the profitable stuff and, and you're taking the stuff as, as let's call it, profit challenged. <laughs> well, I, I will have to say that nobody in the automotive tier one space would disagree with you. <laughs> but I, I think what's interesting, John, is when you look at the what I would call profit opportunities or business opportunities in the emerging markets, other tremendous. You know, I'll just give you one example, which is really not an emerging market right now. It's Brazil. Brazil, and we have quite a bit of business down there, is absolutely red hot. Uh, the reddest hot market, I think, from a profit standpoint in absolutely, the business right now. Absolutely. So you never know where your profits will come from. And for us, we have representation worldwide. Most of our business is, in fact, from outside the United States. So while we have the challenges here, I think we have ample opportunities elsewhere. And do I understand it right, Arvin Innovation is made up of a, a chassis group and a body group, is that, that right? That's correct. When I moved in to be president of the light vehicle systems, we had, in fact, eight separate business units. And part of the challenge we had was to consolidate those so that we could not only get the synergies in the light vehicle group, but also make sure that we were maximizing our return on investment. We've now consolidated those down all the way to two, and it, it's a much simpler business to run. And I will tell you, it, it, from my point of view, it gives us the flexibility we need to move worldwide. The pressure on suppliers right now is from the car companies. Yeah. Please give us anything that can boost fuel economy. Right. What in your product lines might do that? 
We, like anybody, if you rely on the product lines you have in stock today, they're probably not going to meet the demands that the OEMs are looking for for the products of tomorrow. We put a big effort into a couple of key advanced areas. One is in the composite materials to take, for example, an old product called a coil spring, which is made out of steel, which has all sorts of material economic challenges, to move that into a composite spring, which is manufactured with a much different process. It's about a 50% weight reduction. Which is phenomenal. Which 50%. Is phenomenal. That's a big number. Right. And I think uh, we've got a variety of other uh, elements there. But I think the key trends from our point of view is increasing electrical content means you have to be in electronic control systems. We do very well in electronic and smart motor and smart latch designs. All sorts of uh, areas in chassis systems innovation are going to happen, particularly as vehicle architecturals change to help accommodate the hybrid technologies with greater weight and need for some other opportunities there. Oh, this is interesting. This is a part of the business I was not aware that Arvin is involved in. Uh, smart latches and the things. Tell oh. us a little bit about that electronic or electric side. Yeah, I mean, you know me well enough, John. I'm a product development guy by training. My first view at Arvin Meritor was, wait a minute, you have skills in electronic capabilities. You have a safety responsibility for closures. There is a great need for innovation in the latch system design and electric smart motors. We have just launched our first smart motor and we have a new called low energy release latch which is gonna I think revolutionize that part of the business which is very complex. That's come out of our advanced product development group uh, located in the UK. On the chassis system side there clearly is a need for somebody that understands the interactions of all of the chassis elements. But it's interesting, one of our first applications is not in a light vehicle. It's in an off-highway earth mover hmm. where they wanted for safety to have the driver of the earth mover better isolated from the movement of the vehicle. So we have a very complex chassis system we put together there. So it's an interesting part, but you know, the skills have been there. It's just how do we get them to market? Well, it's going to be very interesting watching how you take Arvin innovation into this industry and, and create a whole new business that's what, about a two and a half, three billion startup? Right, right. Real good. Should be fun. Yeah. Well, thanks, <laughs> Phil. Thanks so much for coming in and bringing us up to speed on what you're doing there. John, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm talking right now with Frank Dunn from the law firm of Dyke Magasset. Great to have you here, Frank. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure being with you. We want to talk about private equity today, but first, why would a law firm, Dyke Magasset, be involved with private equity in the auto industry? Well, we have a large transactional practice, and uh, we have probably the foremost automotive practice, if not in the country, uh, if not in the world, certainly in the country. We um, We've done private equity deals as early as the 80s and 90s, and uh, we do a lot of transactions in that regard. There's a lot of uh, sentiment out there that, boy, the private equity guys must have it up to here with the auto industry. You look at what's gone on with GMAC and Cerberus buying that, or Cerberus and Chrysler and, and some of the others. What's the feel from the private equity side? Do they like the automotive industry still? Well, I we're not working on, Dykema hasn't got in-house right now any um, private equity automotive deals that I'm aware of. They could. But I, I, I think they are up to their, the private equity guys are up to it here. But I think it's cyclical. Private equity was here years ago, 
and private equity will be here in the future. What do you mean years ago? Because the, the whole concept of private equity in the auto industry seems pretty new to me. Well, that's because the biggest deals are relatively recent. The service purchase of Chrysler from Daimler, the service uh, purchase of Tower Automotive was uh, relatively recent, of course, the GMAC deal. But uh, Oxford Automotive, I think, was owned by um, private equity investors as early as the 80s. Um, I think the same was true of Tower Automotive. Mm -hmm. uh, you had the Heartland Group involved in the uh, early 2000 period. Collins uh, and Aikman. Collins and Aikman and what have you. So it isn't that new. What's happening today is that private equity is down globally. So what's down in the automotive industry as well. I saw a statistic that um, private equity this year is down 71% in terms of volume of deals. That's a staggering drop-off. That's right. So it's a, I would say it, less than $200 um, billion in private equity globally. That includes China, India, Eastern Europe, Western Europe. Is this a global downturn in the economy, or is it just uh, private equity saying, hey, why don't we digest all the stuff that we've been buying in these go-go years? That's a good point. I think it's a couple of things. One is the cost of debt has gone up, obviously. Its availability has gone up. So the private equity firms, whereas two, three years ago came to a deal with two-thirds debt, now need maybe 45, 50, maybe 60% equity. That's a steep jump. Two, business is down. They've got to buttress their investments they have already. I think we saw, I saw something this morning that um, one of the... Um, Ross operations, uh, he's, he's bought, put more capital into one of his um, European operations. I'm not, I think Wagon, Wagon, it's a, it's a supplier, I don't know the name of it, but I mm -hmm. picked it up. But they're putting more money into their existing um, and, and, and babysitting those as they have to. And then um, finally, the period getting out, it's just gonna take longer. Um, it's gonna cost more going in, and it's gonna take longer getting out. Do you think private equity is getting the kind of returns out of the auto industry that it's been after? Certainly, you, you raised the issue, Wilbur Ross, he seems to have done pretty good so far. He's got a good model. Um, he's aggregating and getting economies of scale in the supplier business. I think that's where you'll continue to see the private equity money because the industry is gonna come around. North America is probably a $300 billion market, total automotive. Suppliers will get a big piece of that. I think he's in a very good position. Service is going to have some issues with Chrysler, uh, but they've got some terrific managers they brought in there. Um, Lasorda, whom you know him, and of course Jim Press, I think the world of Jim. Uh, but, but you didn't mention Bob Nardelli. But, well, Bob Nardelli, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, you know he's got a, something of a checkered career, but uh, he seems to be making all the right moves now. And Cerberus wouldn't bring Bob Nardelli into this situation if they didn't think he had what it takes. Right. And, and, their, and their reputation, they've got a commitment there. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they'll get out of that one all right. What, what do you think is going to happen with Chrysler? I mean, I, I believe the only reason Cerberus bought Chrysler was to fix it up and sell it for a lot more money than they bought it for. And well, that's, that's the model. Um, what do you, when you have an automobile company, what do you sell? Uh, Chrysler right now has, has its biggest problem is its product, product line. On the other hand, you can see Cerberus recognizes that. They're trying short-term fixes, these deals with Nissan, the one, the almost one with Cherry. I don't know what's happening right. with that right Building now. Building stuff for Volkswagen. Uh, that's right. Um, that shows some, some good opportunistic moves. They know what they're doing, but they're also going to put about $2 billion into a new car-based SUV. So they've got their eyes on the future. Who do they sell it to? 
Um, I'm not sure they would be selling it to any of the two remaining domestics, but there's Indian automakers that might be in the mix. Uh, who knows who's going to be making automobiles in China in, in 10, 15 years. Do you think Chrysler will go as one entity or be broken off into pieces? I don't know. Well, you've got the brands. Um, I think it's tough to break, break that up into, into pieces. Uh, you could sell the intellectual property, I suppose, but it's not going to bring back the kinds of returns they want. Um, suppose Tata Motors wants to get a real foothold in North America. If you fixed up Chrysler, that, this may be the right thing. Yeah, or, or Fiat or Peugeot yeah, from, yeah, uh, sure. from Europe, too. I would see some others being interested absolutely, in that. Absolutely, absolutely. Although I bet an Indian automaker might be the first. Oh, Indian why do you bet that, Frank? Well, I, I think they are much stronger in terms of their inherent um, financial strength than most of the companies you've mentioned. Two, they are very expansive, expansion-minded. And I, I look at Tata, Tata, that is an enormously successful company in so many ways. I think they might be more ambitious, too. What do you think uh, private equity is looking for in the auto industry right now? I mean, you said all, all the deals are down, but yeah. do, do you, where are they focused? Where do they still see good deals to be had? Uh, again, I'd say in the supplier area. And there's another reason for that is because they've got more potential customers right here in North America. They, they wouldn't be reliant on simply a General Motors or a Ford, as might have been the case in the past. Another place you might see them moving is into the retail automotive business. Um, Carlisle has, um, didn't they buy Hertz? I, I, I don't know that there. offhand. Carlisle is there. Um, one of the big PE players um, has got um, AutoZone, the aftermarket. That's a huge business, the aftermarket. Um, so I, I think they may be looking downstream. Uh, AutoNation, one of the big um, uh, PE operators, is a big piece of AutoNation. So that would be an interesting place to go. Well, thanks so much for coming in and bringing us up to speed where private equity is looking. But Frank Dunn, Dyke of Magasset, great to have you here on the set of AutoLine. Uh, thanks so much, John. It was a pleasure. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. AutoLine Extra, John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get the inside view at AutoLineDetroit.tv. Don't forget that you can always find more about what's going on in the industry at our website, AutoLineDetroit.tv. We've got more interviews with industry leaders in what we call the AutoLine Extra. And you can find more of my views, opinions, and insights in the section called John's Journal. I emphasize the website because the Sunday broadcast version of AutoLine will be off the air for the next three weeks as Detroit Public Television holds a pledge break, and we encourage you to pledge your support. But thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.